Turn for our reading in God's Word, the Old Testament, to the book of Malachi. Begin to read in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and then we carry on into chapter 3. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your field will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. This evening we're turning to the last book of the Old Testament, to Malachi, and we're turning to the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi probably chronologically did come at the very end of the Old Testament period. As you probably know, uh, the books of the Old Testament aren't in the order necessarily in which they were written. And particularly the prophets come from different periods of Israel's history. Uh, But Malachi really was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He wrote uh, after the Jews had come back from exile in Babylon. They had come, first of all, under Ezra, And the temple was rebuilt uh, at Ezra's uh, instigation under his leadership. 
Then Nehemiah uh, came back with exiles from Babylon and the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. And some time ago, uh, we worked our way through the book of Nehemiah to see uh, how God had dealt with his people in those days. Those were days of encouragement. There at least seemed to be a revival among the, the exiles who'd come back. Many didn't. Many just stayed in Babylon and lost their identity. But those who came back certainly did seem to have a renewed spiritual interest. Uh, and that particularly was evident in their renewing of God's covenant uh, that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, and at that point, the, the future seemed bright. And then Nehemiah had to return, as it were, to his job uh, back in Persia in the royal service, where if you're interested in the history of it back, probably in the year uh, 433 BC. Nehemiah goes back, and sadly, while he is away, there's spiritual decline uh, among the Israelites. And that was evident in different ways, disregarding uh, the Sabbath, going about their own business uh, on the Sabbath day. Uh, There were marriages with unbelievers, and generally, uh, there was a decline spiritually. So Nehemiah came back and responded dramatically to the decline and to the sins that he saw among the people, took strong action uh, to remedy uh, these abuses. And the very end of Nehemiah's book uh, sets out some of the action that Nehemiah took. And it's probably in those days uh, that Malachi was prophesying uh, and writing the book that we now have, these three chapters. Context of decline in the nation, and you certainly see that, Uh, reflected in the things that Malachi has to say, but also a call to the people to come back to the Lord, to repent and return to him. And particularly in Malachi, we have one of the great revelations of the coming Messiah. All of Scripture, of course, in the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. He fulfills all of the Scriptures, but does some parts of it are clearer than others, and certainly uh, in Malachi and in the third chapter, we do see the Messiah, we see the Lord Jesus Christ set before us. And I want to focus our thoughts uh, this evening on the opening verses of Malachi 3. We're looking at verses 1 to 5, the messenger of the covenant. And to see here something of what God revealed through this prophet about the coming Redeemer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the messenger of the covenant. And as we think about him in these verses, we see first of all the confrontation he provokes. The confrontation he provokes. Notice the situation in which Malachi is writing these words. Clearly many of The people, his listeners, his readers, uh, are hardened spiritually. They've become cynical. Uh, You can hear that in the closing words of chapter 2. That's why uh, we took them as part of the reading earlier. Because you can listen to the sorts of things that people were saying uh, as Malachi was carrying on his ministry. And what they're complaining about particularly is at least the apparent success of ungodly people, of evildoers, of unbelievers. 
And of course, uh, the, the evildoers are always other people. Uh, it's those pagans, it's those bad people. It's never the Israelites themselves. Chapter 2, verse 17. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. That's the sort of thing they were saying. You get on far better if you actually ignore God. And they looked around and they believed they could see people getting on perfectly well without God. Why was that? They say, we, we were trying to be people who keep God's law and yet things are difficult for us. And here are these unbelievers, these pagans, they're getting on fine. Where is the God of justice? They were asking at the very end of chapter 2. Why doesn't God do something about this? And perhaps those are the kinds of things that we hear people say, and Christians saying, maybe you find yourself sometimes thinking them yourself. How is it that those who've no thought for God seem to get on well, maybe get on better than some Christians out of all the problems that Christians are struggling with? What's God doing about it? Where's the God of justice? You might not say it out loud, and yet in your heart, those may be some of the questions you're asking. And here were people uh, who wanted to see God act and to judge those unbelievers, judge those pagans, do something about them. That's the background to the word that God gives Malachi in chapter 3. The first verse begins God's answer to the moanings and the complainings of people. God is going to act. He's going to act, he says, in a mighty way. First of all, God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. There's going to be a royal visitation where a king is coming, the Lord himself. And before the king arrives, God will send out a messenger to prepare the way. And we know how that was fulfilled. We're not in any doubt about the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because we're told, Mark chapter 1 and verse 2, it's quoted. And it's quoted there with reference, of course, to John the Baptist. There's the messenger sent before the Lord, before he comes in all his power and his holiness and his glory. A messenger comes, it's John the Baptist. And how did John prepare the way? He prepared it by calling Israel to repent, to turn from their sins. Not coming to say, God's going to destroy those unbelievers. He came to say, you need to repent of your sins. Here were people who were very good at seeing the sins and feelings of others, but not their own sins. And John the Baptist came, and in some ways, his ministry and his preaching would have been a shock to Israel because he was telling people who supposedly were the people of God, you need to repent, you need to be forgiven, you need to have your sin taken away. And so the messenger comes to those who profess to be God's people. and He tells them they need forgiveness, they need to repent. And of course, now, perhaps those who were complaining would begin to see that when God answered their cry, where's the God of justice? God's answer 
might actually be quite uncomfortable because it might start not with other people but with them. God will deal with them first of all. Said rightly, sometimes be careful what you pray for. That was true of the people complaining in Malachi's day. They weren't going to like some of the things that God would do to show his justice and to deal with sin. But first, the, the, the forerunner, the messenger, John the Baptist, comes. And then we read, suddenly, the Lord will come to his temple. Here's the visitation of the king. God is coming. God arrives. People will be taken unawares. He, he comes in a way that was unexpected. He is the messenger of the covenant. After the forerunner John the Baptist, the Lord himself will come. And we know, of course, how the Lord came after John had prepared the way. He came in the incarnate Son of God. He came in Messiah Jesus. And as Christ, of course, he is foreseen in these verses. Now, if you're using the NIV, you'll notice uh, before chapter 2, verse 17, there's a heading, the Day of Judgment. I would suggest ignore that. Those are the, the translator's ideas. Sometimes they're useful, sometimes they're not. It isn't just the day of judgment that's in view. It's all the work of the Messiah that's in view here. It's all that Christ comes to do. Certainly it includes final judgment. But it's his whole ministry. To bring salvation and to bring judgment. He comes as the messenger of the covenant. And he came first to people who were quite sure they were holy people. They were good people. The scribes and Pharisees, for example, quite convinced that they were right with God and it was other people who would have to repent. John the Baptist and then the Lord Jesus came and confronted them with their sin. And it was a shock to Israel. Find the same thing, for example, in Amos 5, and verse 18. People were looking for the day of the Lord and how great it would be. And the prophet says that day will be darkness, not light. And God would answer their cries for justice, for God to deal with sin. He was going to start with their sin and their need of salvation. It was a confrontation. When the messenger of the covenant comes, none can escape that confrontation, that reckoning with a holy God. Many people are quite happy with the idea that God will judge all kinds of sinners. And they may be very good at pointing out what sinners need to be judged, yet never imagining that when God judges sin and deals with it, It'll be their sin, perhaps, that'll be dealt with first. Temptation is to try to limit the action of a holy God to judging others and their failings and their sins and to ignore our own sin. That's what was happening in Malachi's day. We've always got to be on our guard against that feeling. 
We need to remember before a holy God, we're all guilty sinners. And God will deal with all sin. Confrontation he provokes. Because Christ, when he comes, does confront sinners of all kinds. We have to reckon with him. We all have to reckon with Christ and with the work that he has come to do. The confrontation he provokes. But then secondly, we see the covenant he administers. The covenant he administers. The messenger of the covenant. And we need to be clear what a covenant is. If we're going to think of Christ, the messenger of the covenant, and one who comes as God's representative, and one who himself is God, the Lord, we need to understand what this covenant signifies. Christ comes as God, as the Son of God, and significant even here in the Old Testament as so often there are foreshadowings of the Trinity. The Father, we have the Son here. And the Son comes, the eternal Son, the Messiah, and he comes, messenger of the covenant. So what is a covenant? You don't read your Bible all that long until you come across the term covenant. What is it? Well, it's the bond, the bond of love between God and his people. The relationship that God and his love and his grace establishes with those that he saves. He brings them into covenant with himself. Nearest analogy uh, that we have in everyday life is the marriage covenant. The binding together of two people in a bond of love. And that's what God's covenant with his people is. It's a bond of love. He gives himself to us and he takes us as his people. And there's a bond that's forged by the love and the grace of God that can never be broken. We're brought into the family of God. We become citizens of God's kingdom. There's so many ways in which the Bible describes our status as the Lord's people brought into covenant with God. And you see that all the way through the Bible. You can study the theme of covenant from Genesis to Revelation. It's like a thread that runs all the way through Scripture. How God deals with sinners in grace and in mercy. And you find the covenant renewed from time to time. Uh, With Abraham, for example, in Genesis 17 with King David in 2 Samuel 7. You've mentioned of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and perhaps sometime we'll take a study and go through some of those covenant passages. But for all that there are differences from the covenants renewed in each of these occasions, what we need to see clearly is it's always the same covenant. God deals with sinners in grace and in love, always in the same way. It's the same salvation that he gives his people. Whether it's Abraham, or it's Matthew, or it's us. And it's the same covenant. 
If it's summed up in a verse I've often quoted, and I'll keep uh, quoting it. Leviticus 26 and verse 12. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. That's really what the covenant is in its simplest biblical terms. I'll walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. That is always the covenant God makes with his people. The same today, and it will always be the same. And turn up Revelation 21 and verse 3. Here, in the glories of Christ's return, what do we find? God will walk among his people and will be their God, and they will be his people. The covenant is there. Genesis to Revelation. Covenant is God's bond of love with his people. And it always is rooted in sovereign grace. Begins in the grace of God to people who deserve only judgment and condemnation. That's what we deserve because of our sins. Let's never be under any illusions as to what our, our natural state before God is. We're sinners. We're disobedient. We don't submit to God. We live for self. And it's only the sovereign grace of God that can save a sinner. There's no hope in any of us. If the Lord were to wait for us to take the first step towards him, he'd wait for eternity. Because we never would. We're dead in transgressions and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. It's grace, God's grace, that's the beginning of salvation. That's the beginning of this covenant. And often we call it the covenant of grace, because that's exactly what it is. It is love and favor to people who deserve judgment. Of course, it requires a response from us, a response of faith. We must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to be saved. And yet even that faith, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, is the gift of God. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into the covenant of grace. We are bound to the Lord forever. Now, sometimes, perhaps, we may think of covenant as something that's coldly legal and abstract, a matter of terms and conditions. In God's covenant, there are conditions and obligations that are laid on us. But the covenant is full of the love of God. If we lose sight of that, we've really not understood God's covenant. It's an expression of his love. Love that was set upon sinners like us before he made the world. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, we are told. And so this covenant with its legal obligations and its commitments is also, and it is supremely a bond of love. God's love flows out 
to undeserving sinners. And then we in turn respond to him in love. And at the very center of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. In the end, it's all about Christ. The role of the Messiah is crucial. Because how can people like us sinners enter covenant with a holy God, a God who hates all sin? And the answer is Christ, the messenger of the covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ does everything that is needed so that people like us can be brought into the covenant of grace. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, one of the great messianic prophecies, the Father says to the Son, he says to Christ, I will make you to be a covenant for the people. What does that mean? What's the Father saying to his Son? What's explained for us at the Last Supper in the upper room? The Lord Jesus Christ took the cup. And we're told in Mark 14, 24, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant. The cup, that's wine, represented the shedding of his blood on the cross. And Jesus says specifically, It is my blood of the covenant. It is the blood that Jesus shed in his death to be followed by his triumphant resurrection that makes it possible for sinners to enter this covenant of grace to be saved. It's because Christ has shed his blood that we can be saved. He has done everything that's needed. Because our sin must be dealt with. We cannot come into covenant with God and bring our sin with us. It just isn't possible. He's a holy God. How is our sin dealt with? It's by the blood of Jesus. He's taken the burden of the sins of his people. And when he shed his blood on the cross, he has dealt with our sin. It is cleansed, it's forgiven, and we are brought into the covenant as forgiven sinners who may be in covenant with a holy God. That's true for all of God's people. They're saved because of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a sacrifice on the cross is effective backwards as well as forwards. So that Old Testament saints, like Malachi, like Moses, like David, like Abraham, were saved by the blood of Christ, just as New Testament believers, just like us. Abraham is not saved in any different way from you or from me. They're saved by the blood of Christ has shed on the cross the blood of the covenant. And we are brought by the Lord Jesus Christ 
into the covenant of grace. He is the messenger of the covenant. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no way in. There is no salvation. There is no way to be right with God apart from Christ and as one perfect sacrifice. The covenant he administers, the bond, the unbreakable bond of love that God establishes with his people. He gives himself to be our God and he takes us as his people. And all of that is possible because Jesus has died and risen. The covenant he administers. Let's think a little more about the work of Christ because thirdly we see here the cleansing he effects. The cleansing he effects. We've talked about his shed blood and how it deals with our sin. And it's described here, and we see it will be a powerful work, and it'll be a painful work. Who can endure the day of his coming, we're asked. There's something terrible about the coming of the messenger of the covenant. Dramatic images are used that all speak to us about cleansing. A refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. I think in modern terms, perhaps, of bleaching. Powerful language. Effecting a cleansing that goes to the very depths of a person's life. We experience a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. There's a cleansing that goes into all the corners of a sinner's life, right to the very depths of his or her heart. This is not some superficial tidying up of a person's life, getting rid of a few bad habits here or there, something that you could manage on your own. This is a work of God that transforms a sinner's heart and life. That God seeks out the impurities and the uncleanness and burns it up, cleanses it, removes it. That's what we need. Nothing less than that. Remember what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Well, God can, and God does. And when God comes to sinners in grace and in power, there's a cleansing that misses out nothing, that goes everywhere in a person's life and deals with their guilt and their disobedience, their sin. Verse 5 reinforces the point that the Lord makes through Malachi. He's coming near to you, we're told, for judgment. The kind of sins uh, that he deals with, but like the, the sins that we were thinking about in Revelation 22 this morning that will exclude from the city, from the new Jerusalem, if they're not repented of. 
And they're set out for us, sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, very similar some of the sins uh, that are being mentioned. And others, those who defraud laborers of their wages, economic oppression. Something perhaps Christians tend to overlook. Those who oppress the widows, the fatherless, deprive aliens of justice. God deals with sin of all kinds. Blood of the Messiah cleanses sin of all kinds. And the root of sin, we have it there. We do not fear God. All these sins really are are symptoms of the disease. We don't fear God. That's our natural sinful condition. As true of all sinners, even those, as we see the Levites, the the religious functionaries, the people we might think of as the good living people. But they're sinners too who need the cleansing of God's grace by the blood of Jesus. God begins with professing believers. 1 Peter 4.17, it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Painful purging process. And we can respond in different ways when God comes, perhaps through his word or through the words of a Christian to us. Our sin is touched on and exposed. Well, we may close ourselves off and refuse to acknowledge sin. Close the Lord out and close out hope, of course, if we do. Or we may, as his grace works upon us, open our lives to God's searching work and his cleansing. And then indeed God will do a wonderful work. It's a painful thing to have your sin exposed. To to be aware that you're before a holy God who sees the dark corners The things you would hide from yourself if you could. When the searchlight of God's truth exposes sin. Then there's a call to respond. To respond in repentance and faith. To receive the cleansing that's described here. And this is a word of hope. The reality of sin is set out for us. It's not dressed up in pretty colors. It's not minimized in any way. Sin is sin. But there's a word of hope and encouragement. Because we see in these verses, finally, the commitment he receives. The commitment that the messenger of the covenant receives. Look at how he's described in verse 3. A refiner and purifier of silver. Now the goal of the refiner is not destruction. To refine silver or gold does not have the goal of destroying the gold or silver. It's to purify it. So that at the end of the process there will be pure silver mixed with nothing else. Pure gold mixed with nothing else. And the heat is applied and the impurities rise and they're skimmed off. 
And then the heat's applied again, and more impurities rise, and they're skimmed off. And step by step, the goal is being reached that there will be the purified silver. It will be refined at the end of this work. It is said that eventually the refiner could look into the molten metal in the furnace and see a reflection of his own likeness in the pure metal. The impurities were gone. He could see his own reflection. And isn't that significant as we think of God's purifying work in the heart and life of a sinner? We're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are being transformed into the Lord's image from glory to glory. And as God graciously works and his people, those he's brought to repentance and faith, those who are true Christians. And he continues to work and refines us and shows us sin that remains in us and brings us to repent of it and receive cleansing. Gradually, the Lord is reshaping us in the likeness of his Son, the messenger of the covenant. Gradually the Lord is able to look at us and to see more of his Son reflected back to him as we are purified. Less of sin and self and more of Christ. And that's the process that God continues to work out as long as he leaves us here on earth. We'll never be perfectly refined until he takes us to glory. But he keeps doing the work. And often it is painful. It's like the heat applied in the furnace. And at times we would rather he didn't. And yet God loves us. And he'll keep refining us. And he'll keep showing us sin that needs to be repented of. And the result Verses 3 and 4, there will be men who will bring offerings in righteousness. It's a picture of worship. The worshippers coming and bringing their offerings to the Lord, offerings that are a token of their commitment to him in God's service. It's a picture of people who are worshipping and serving the Lord from hearts that have been renewed by his grace. Here are his covenant people who are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, and they're worshipping and serving the Lord willingly. Hearts are renewed. And that's seen outwardly in worship and in service to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are ourselves are, are the sacrifices. That's the language Paul uses In Romans 12, living sacrifices. We're not bringing lambs or goats or bulls to be offered on an altar. We don't need to do that. But now as God's people, we ourselves are the sacrifice. Wholeheartedly dedicated 
to the Lord. Sacrifices that are described in Hebrews 13, for example, verses 15 and 16. A sacrifice of praise, of good works, of sharing with others in need. Those are very practical things. Those are the sacrifices now that Christians are to bring to the Lord, not animals. Christ has done away with all of those. Don't need them. But we are the sacrifices. We offer ourselves, our worship, and our service. That's our response to the Lord. He has loved us. Christ has given himself for us. We are brought into the covenant of grace. And this is how we live. Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we are committed wholeheartedly to him. There's the goal of the Lord's refining process. Not to destroy us. Not even to hurt us unnecessarily. But to make us more and more like his son. To make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And as God works in our hearts and lives, that's the goal he has. He knows where he's taking us. He's taken us to the point where we reflect the likeness of Jesus perfectly. Job 23.10, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And by God's grace we will. Ultimately, we will be perfectly like Christ. We'll reflect him as fully and as faithfully as finite creatures can do that. When the Lord comes back, as we thought in Revelation 22 this morning, we will be like him. And we will be purified. We will be refined. And we will live in covenant with the Lord eating of the tree of life, drinking the water of life, safe in the city, the new Jerusalem, forever and ever. And it's all possible because of the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and returning for his people. A great saviour, one who does a comprehensive work. A work we need, each one of us, as sinners. To be forgiven, to be brought into the covenant of grace, and step by step to be purified and remade in the likeness of Jesus until we see him face to face. May that be the work that God is doing in the heart of each one of us, and all for the glory of of his name.